Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 31st, we are studying Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 35. The preparations for Jesus' Passover have been made. He institutes a new meal for his church, even as he is about to be betrayed by one of his own and forsaken by the others who are closest to him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Uh, thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Wergau, give us some context. We've, we've entered into that last great section of Matthew's Gospel, the Passion Narrative. This is what Matthew's been driving at the whole time. Uh, what do we need to know going into our verses for today? Right. I mean, you said it. We're in the Passion Narrative, so this is really, uh, everything's getting kind of keyed up here. Uh, everything's leading up to this point. I think you kind of, you see it come out in the text, even with what we have in our pericope, where where this is the, this is the thing that, that Jesus has been really talking about and, and heading towards. Uh, and it's really going to be not just the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, but of, of the entire scriptures. Uh, he's going to talk a couple times in here about how this is, um, as it has been written, this is what's going to happen. And that's going to entail a few things that we'll see here in the text, uh, including his betrayal, and including uh, his the the abandonment of his disciples at his betrayal, uh, and the, uh, uh, um, the even the denial of Peter, which all kind of fits into this. But right there, right in the middle, we'll see too is the uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is of course foundational and and just a, a big pinnacle to um, to to uh, the Gospels and what what Christ is giving. So we've we've gone a little bit into the Passion account. I mean, you kind of kind kind of started there at twenty at the top of 26, the beginning of 26, uh, and Jesus is anointed at, at Bethany, and then you have that key point right before this uh, Passover celebration where you have Judas agreeing to, to betray Jesus, which then we'll see kind of plays into when Jesus um, uh, foretells this, this betrayal, that one of his own will betray, um, betray, betray him. Uh, and and so uh, and then I think yeah we, we're, we're brought up right even to the preparation for the Passover uh, and so um, you know we've kind of talked probably talked a little bit about the Passover and what that all is going on there and then this puts us right then into the um, into the actual uh, uh, institution of the Lord's Supper here but right before that again you have uh, this. Um, uh, foretelling that there will be uh, one, one will betray him, and I, you almost kind of see in the the layout of, of of the text that we have to look at here, uh, you know, twenty through thirty-five. It's almost like the Lord's Supper is sandwiched by these two kind of uh, incidences concerning the disciples, which I think is very interesting to look at that order. You have coming before this, you have um, uh, all the disciples uh, gathered together, and Jesus saying, "One of you will betray me," and and then of course they're all. Who is it going to be? Is it I? Which we'll talk more about. And then you have the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then you have, again, the idea that not only will one betray him, but all the disciples are going to flee. Uh, and so it's very interesting, I think, as we delve into this text, we're going to kind of see how uh, that structure is kind of neat to see 
and how it really does speak not only to Jesus' situation and what was going on, but even uh, we as, as disciples of our Lord Christ uh, fitting ourselves into that as well. Maybe, maybe give us a, a little bit more on that, Pastor Wergal. I, I mean, it, it is always neat to see the structure of, of the Gospels, and we are right to pay attention to it. But I, I think we also want to do more than just say, hey, look, this is what Matthew's doing, but, but try to answer the question, well, why is he doing that? And what's the, what's the point he's trying right. to drive home about Jesus and our lives as disciples within that structure? Give us a little bit more on that. I, I think since you brought it up, let's just talk about it now. <laughs> Sure, sure, because I think we're going to really get into, I think, because what you have here is really, everything is getting kind of heightened uh, in Jesus' own group as well, and, and, and you have this sense of, we know this thing is happening, that, that, that our Lord's going to be betrayed, and we, the readers, know this very well, but even for the disciples in the moment, and, and the idea that Jesus is, is going about this willingly and, 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 and going forward with this, but that this is going to be uh, this is going to be a, a big thing, I guess. It's kind of an understatement, and 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 kind of how it it taxes on the disciples, uh, in the sense where they're where they know this is going to take place, and and how are they going to stand uh, in the midst of this? I mean, I think that really gets to the question of why they're asking. You know, it's not me, is it? Right? I'm not going to be the one to betray you, or or then later on at the end of this pericope when it's like, well, I'm not going to abandon you if you are betrayed. Right. And, and if Peter kind of as the spokesman of all, even if I die, uh, I will not betray you. And, 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 and all the disciples saying the same thing. And yet it is our Lord then who is handed over, just just as he said. And it is all the disciples who then who then scatter uh, and, and Peter even denying his Lord. And then I think also that what we'll see, too, is a clear understanding what we have here with the disciples are are human. They're not uh, supermen at all. And they fail and they fall. But then I think what our confessions kind of bring out, which I hopefully we can look at that too, is the idea that there is this sense of contrition, repentance, and, and faith in Christ that comes about with Peter and the other disciples as well. This is what our Lord is doing is for, is for them. Right, right. And so to see Jesus at the center of all that, well, and I, I think this yeah. is true going forward into the the passion narrative, over and over, we're going to see Jesus stand firm while everyone mm-hmm. around him is, is falling away or, or sinning, failing in some way, shape or another. And, and here, particularly the way that, like you said, it's sandwiched, the Lord's Supper is sandwiched in there. Again, why why is Jesus doing this? Well, he's doing this for the people who are going to flee from him, for the people, for the person who's mm-hmm. going to betray him, for the one who's going to deny him. Right there in the middle, it just it does. It highlights the the willingness of Jesus in all of this, the mm-hmm. the purpose of Jesus in all of this, and and that structure of Matthew. And you know, I, I I divided the verses up when I scheduled this more for so that we could handle all a chunk at once. But but I, I didn't plan to have that sandwich like that on, on purpose. But I mean, you do you do see it there, and I, I think Matthew's Matthew's structuring of it invites that sort of reflection for us. So let's go ahead and, and read the text, and, and we can reflect on this further as we continue. So again, we're in, in Matthew chapter twenty six beginning at verse 20. When it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. 
but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 35. Pastor Rorgal, the, the text picks up right where we, we left off last time. The disciples have made the preparations Jesus told them to make for the Passover, and now we're at the meal itself. So just take us into that, that setting of this Passover meal. Matthew tells us they were reclining at the table, which is maybe a, an unusual way of, of speaking for us today. We, we sit at table. We don't recline at table. What's the, what's the scene that, that we have here in verse 20? Yeah, this is a very customary uh, um, uh, position uh, for the gathering uh, for for really uh, lots of banquets or festivals at Jesus' time. I didn't realize this until I did a little bit of looking into this, uh, that this is actually, especially in regards to the Passover, it actually has kind of a, a deeper significance to it. So the custom of reclining at the table uh, was really common, uh, not even with just the Jews, but really civilized Mediterranean people at that time. This was what they would do. They would recline at table. Normally, you were on your left side, and with the right hand, you were free to eat. Um, and so, uh, but but what's interesting is that those who reclined at table were the ones dining, uh, and it was the ones uh, who were served were the ones that would recline, and that the the servants and such would be standing, you know, to to uh, typically to. Uh, to serve, and and this is what uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament kind of brought out in their article that reclining at the Passover was meant actually to also signify, after the Exodus, that the Israelites were were free men and not slaves because this is the Passover, right? So this is the commemoration of God leading His people of Israel uh, out of slavery and and um, and bondage in Egypt, uh, and then and leading them out of that, breaking them from slaves to make them to make them free, his people, that, that it is. Uh, and, and the Passover was a reminder of that. And so, uh, you know, according to the, this, uh, this uh, entry I read in the uh, Theological Dictionary, uh, that this actually had kind of the signifying that they, they weren't servant, servants of, uh, of Egypt anymore. They weren't slaves, but they were, um, uh, they were, they were free. It was uh, kind of almost essential to uh, to their gathering together to have this reclining at table. Right. So, okay. So, so in in this event, then we're seeing a, a bit of a preaching going on. Then, as to how their mm-hmm. their posture. This is a 
a restful, I mean, and reclining at table, this is, like you said, this is the posture that, that would have been pretty typical. And, and it's, it's saying mm-hmm. something about what the Passover signifies for them, that they are, are free now. They are not slaves anymore. And, and everything up to this point is, is regular, right? I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is not, mm-hmm. nothing's out of the ordinary at this point until Jesus right. starts talking at, at the meal as they're <laughs> eating it. And so what, is, what does Matthew highlight for us as, as the conversation begins around the table? Right, which is interesting. And in Matthew and Mark, I believe both are the ones, um, Luke's gospel puts this um, betrayer words here uh, uh, foretelling uh, after the words of institution or the institution of the supper. But here there's this idea that uh, they're all gathered around, right? Like you said, everything's normal. And then, and then Jesus says, Truly, and when you know when Jesus starts off with something with "Amen," truly, uh, it's significant, right? It's very significant. This is, uh, of course, everything Jesus says is significant, but but the "Amen," uh, which, which is the Greek, but but truly uh, draws our attention that this is something important, uh, and and it's probably not something that the disciples. It's definitely not something that the disciples want to hear, uh, and it's not that this what he says is is the first time. This isn't out of the blue at all. Jesus has been talking about being betrayed. He's been foretelling his passion uh, from very early on. Uh, but here now, like I said, everything's kind of getting heightened. Uh, they know that this is, this is going to happen. And then Jesus says, one of you will, will betray me. Uh, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So one of the one of the twelve, one of those sitting at table, one of those, and Jesus, it's not some foreigner. It's not somebody on the outside, but it's one of Jesus' inner circle, one of them will betray him. So I think there's really this theological significance here that Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what's going to take place, uh, that he's going to be handed over and he's going to be crucified, and still he goes forward willingly. Um, And he doesn't now either, at this time, even keep that fact from his disciples. They need to know this. Um, And he even mentioned it earlier he knows his betrayer, you know, uh, in, uh, well, in John six, um, it's very interesting. Cause I kind of pulled up this re- cross reference here and to kind of see John at the end of kind of Jesus bread of life discourse after he feeds the 5,000. And then he has the discourse about, uh, being the, the bread of life. Uh, and then many of the disciples turn back and aren't going to walk with him. Right. And, and Jesus goes to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Because, you know, it was a hard teaching. And Simon Peter, we know this, these, these very famous words, they find their way into our liturgy. Even Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter makes a great confession there as well. And then Jesus' answer, though, is, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And John gives us the commentary here on this, the evangelist. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So even early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, we have this sense that this is this is going to happen, and this is even in the inner circle of the twelve, those who didn't fall away from Jesus with his hard teaching, because they knew you're the ones that have you're the one that has the words of eternal life. Uh, there's going to be the one, the, the, the one of you is a devil. There's going to be the one who's going to betray him, who's going to hand him over, which of course is in fulfillment of scripture and what Christ came to do in the first place, you know, what is of first importance. Right. Yeah. So the, 
just to make that point again that you were saying, and mm-hmm. we, we talked about this yesterday too, that to see the the willingness of Jesus in all of this, and, and even how he highlights it with the word amen, truly, at the beginning, to, to tell them, look, I, I know what's going to happen to me. And I, that is a wonderful comfort as we read throughout the Passion narrative. It's, it's very easy to get get lost in the why is this happening? What are the the human motivations behind all of this? We talked a little bit about that yesterday with Judas. You, you get that he's named, you know, as the betrayer right there in verses fourteen through sixteen, and what what was going on in his mind. And Matthew doesn't really doesn't really say a lot in terms of what his motivation was. And, and certainly, you know, we know what his motivation was from from other gospels. But just to leave that as a mystery, at least within Matthew's narrative, and to to hold on to this thing that Matthew keeps putting in front of us, that Jesus knows what's going on. He's directing the events. He's, he's doing this willingly. And, and as you said, he's, he's talked about this previously. John chapter 6, he's mentioned that one of the 12 is a devil. He's talked about in Matthew's gospel. He's used this language before in, in his passion predictions, both in, in Matthew 17 and Matthew 20. And I'm looking now to see it doesn't look like it's in, in Matthew 16, in the first time he mentions his death and resurrection, but both in Matthew 17 and Matthew 20, the second and third times where Jesus talks about his upcoming passion, death, resurrection, he, he uses the same language of betrayal, though at least in the ESV it gets, it gets translated a bit differently. It doesn't say he's going to be betrayed, but it says it's translated he's going to be delivered over. So, and right. I, I think there's something, there's, there's, I don't know, a play on words is not exactly the right thing, but there's something to this particular verb about being delivered over or betrayed in this context that that invites further reflection as, again, what's really happening here? What's Jesus up to? Take us into that that word, Pastor Orgal. Yeah, this, so this word in the Greek is uh, paradidomi. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It literally means to, to hand over, which we can see in the English, the sense where we see that with betray, right? To betray somebody is to hand them over to something. So Judas is handing Jesus over uh, to to the uh, to the Jews, right? Uh, but you know, I think there's even something more significant to this is that uh, that that Jesus, uh, again, like we talked about, he's not doing anything uh, out of his control, if you will, right? And so he he is in a sense. Judas is the one who betrays him for sure, hands him over, but Jesus is the one who willingly is is handing over himself even uh, as the lamb uh, to be brought to slaughter. And what I thought was interesting, this word popped up when I was just doing a search of it, and, and this is the same word that John uses in uh, John 19, uh, at Jesus' death, 1930, that he, um, that Jesus ultimately uh, gave up his spirit, but it's that same word. He hands over his spirit and his crucifixion. He he gives up everything, even his very life that he lays down uh, uh, for the life of the world. Uh, Paradidomi too, then, though, is interesting because this is the word, okay, so to hand over somebody isn't to betray them or to deliver them over, but um, this is the same word that Paul will use uh, a couple, a few times in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about what he hands over to the um, to the church, uh, and so in, in connection specifically with the Lord's Supper, which of course is very much related to what we're dealing with uh, in our pericope in First Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, "For I received from the Lord." So that's you know the word to receive from the Lord. That's where it comes from, and what Paul has received, he also delivers to you. That is to the Corinthians, to, to us Christians. 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was handed over, or we often say betrayed, took bread. So, so this idea then betray or betray, uh, hand over is, is a word for betray, but also this word that we have for a proper sense of, of, of tradition, right? We receive, it's nothing new or original what we receive, then we hand over. And this is the Christian faith, right? It doesn't come from us, but we receive it from God and we deliver it over through the, the preaching of his word. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and the content of what we hand over is nothing else than that our Lord was betrayed or handed over into death for us. That's what it all has to do with, including uh, when we celebrate uh, his supper. Right. So, so this, this word about being handed over to be betrayed invites a bit of reflection. And, and yesterday's program, we talked a little bit about the irony that is here in the passion narrative. So for example, in, in the very first five verses of Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus knows what's going to happen. And that's, that's very clear. And then you get this ironic moment where all the while the chief priests are plotting to, to do something that they think they're in control. So you, you've got this, this irony where there's, there's two different perspectives going on and, and one, one party doesn't really kind of get what's going on. And, and I think with this word hand over, betray here, it's, it's a similar sort of irony that, you know, from Judas's perspective, what does he think? He thinks he's handing Jesus over. Whereas as Matthew, and, and, and again, as within the wider context of, of the other Gospels and what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, would invite us into Jesus' perspective, who's really doing the handing over here? Jesus is, right. is handing over himself into death he's he's mm-hmm. handing over his his supper to his church and and that supper then gets gets handed over gets delivered now to us through the the teaching of the apostles and the holy scripture i mean so so yeah it's, it's just a wonderful reflection here for a moment who's again who's behind this who's really doing the the handing over here well it it's our lord further thoughts pastor Virgo? right no that's exactly right and i mean i think that the important thing to understand as we go through these Passion narratives, and we, or the, the passion narrative, that we have this sense that uh, we've mentioned this before, but nothing is happening outside of God's will and outside of um, our Lord's uh, capabilities. Right? He's not. He's not go. He's going forth willingly. He's handing himself over into this for the life of the world. But yeah, exactly. At the same time, uh, you know, you say the Jews, and you say. Judas, in this sense, too, are, are doing this, and, and they think that they are serving their own purposes, but even what they intend for evil, God, God is using for, for good uh, to bring life to the world. And, and take it even another step, you know, this is, you know, uh, you know, one of them's a devil, right? Judas, who would hand him over, because this is really um, what would appear to be the work, work of Satan, right? That, that the Son of God would be delivered over, crucified, and killed. Satan wants us dead, he wants God dead, you know, he doesn't want God, and yet it's that very act that defeats sin, death, and the power of the devil. Right. So Jesus has has announced this to his disciples yet again, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And and again, just to set the scene right there, they're reclining at table, things have been normal up to this point. Jesus says this, and then it's, it's like the whole scene just turns into a, a bit of commotion. What's the disciples' reaction in verse 22? Yeah. Oh, I mean, they ask, is it I, right? I mean, this is, and, and, well, and, and Matthew tells us they, they were very sorrowful, right? They, they begin to be very sorrowful 
Um, and uh, this was, uh, you know, obviously changes the mood. Like I said, they, they, you think, you know, we don't really know what's going on in the disciples' minds entirely during Jesus' earthly ministry, but you can tell at different points where Jesus is predicting these things and plainly telling his disciples that these things are happening, and there's almost a sense of denial with all of it, right? You think of this earlier, Matthew, um, with the, uh, Peter gives the confession, and then, and then Jesus gives, um, you know, the, the um, foretells his death and resurrection, and, and, and Peter of course, says, far be it from you, Lord, this isn't going to happen. So there's a sense of denial. Our Lord's saying this is going to happen. And in fact, uh, this is good that this happens. Eh, good for you. And, and, and there's a sense of denial because they don't truly yet understand who this Jesus is and what he's doing. I mean, they have a clear confession. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. But they don't fully understand what that all entails. And so now here, the same thing kind of happens, and, and I think it even hits closer to home if they, if they haven't already realized it. It's going to be not only that Jesus is uh, handed over uh, um, to, uh, to, to the Jews and, and to be crucified and killed, but it's going to be one in their midst. And then, obviously, it's the idea then, well, if it's going to be one of the 12, who is it? And it's interesting because they don't ask who is it or who is it going to be. It's, is it I? And, and actually, uh, the, the Greek's a little bit more literal here. It's more of a sense of uh, not, is it I, Lord, but it is not I. Is it, Lord? You know, it's not me, is it? Right? Because the, the Greek is a sense where there's a, they're intending in this question that it's a negative, right? They don't want it to be them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not going to be me, right? And, uh, and, and so uh, that's kind of just what they're, what they're kind of facing here and, and why they ask this particular question. I also think um, that there's this sense, this, this does relate, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm just kind of thinking that this might also relate to another common thing we see with the disciples is the argument over who is the greatest in all of this, right? So who is the greatest disciple next to Jesus? Well, it's obviously not going to be the one that betrays him. So this arguing, it's not me, right, is because I'm still good, right? I'm still up there. Uh, I'm still, you know, I'm not going to be that, that filthy betrayer. I'm, I'm, I'm close to you. I'm one of the greater ones, right? And, and, and how that's going to kind of be, they're going to be taken down a few notches here. Yeah, they might not be the, be the betrayer. They might not be the devil, Judas, for sure. But as he's going to say towards the end, you're all going to fall away. You're all in a sense, not going to hand me over, but you're going to, to deny me. I, I think you're right to make that connection between the, the argument over who's the greatest and this matter of it's it's not me, is it? it Luke Luke actually does that for us. He puts these conversations side by side on, on Monday, Thursday. That that conversation oh, yeah. of who's you know, is it is it I and then the dispute of, of who's the greatest. So I think I think you're right on there, Pastor Wergal. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're gonna take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Tuesday, March 31st, we're studying Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 35 with Pastor Sam Wergau of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Austin, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we were looking at the conversation around the meal there between Jesus and his disciples. He has very clearly told them, one of you is going to betray me. Each of each one of them, is it I, Lord? It can't be me, right, Lord? How does Jesus answer their question? Yeah. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, we need to understand, first of all, because the context is really key here, what's going on with the meal and everything. This isn't to single out somebody. It's not to single out Judas, as if Judas was the one dipping his hand in the dish. Uh, but it, it everybody, this would have been a com- common dish that you were dipping probably the bread into, right? And then that was just part, everybody shared this dish. So it, it's, again, emphasizing the idea when Jesus had said earlier, one of you will betray me, one of the 12. It's it's not singling out Judas, but saying, yes, it's one of the 12. One of you that's dipped your, the, 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 uh, his hand in the in the dish is going to be the one that, that betrays him. So it kind of emphasizes that point, that it's going to be one of Jesus' close inner circle, if you will. Uh, and so uh, it doesn't, again, it doesn't single it out, but it just emphasizes the fact that it's going to be one of them. Right. Just, yeah. And just real briefly. So the, the picture we, I think sometimes, and I, I think I thought this as a child, that, that this statement from Jesus was to say, as it, to picture the meal, that he was the only one that took his mm-hmm. piece of bread and literally like Peter, James, John, and, and the other 11, they didn't do this, and Judas did, mm-hmm. and that was sort of the key. But, but really, as, as you're saying, they've all done this. They've all dipped their hand into mm-hmm. the dish, and it's a reminder of just how, how deep a betrayal this really is. This is someone that Jesus ate with, which is a, I mean, right. that's, that's a huge thing. It's not somebody unknown. It's not one of the, the Romans or, or, or even one of the chief priests who, who doesn't really know Jesus that well. This is one of his 12 closest friends that's who's doing the betrayal and and that's the the key how how then does jesus continue to speak about this one who will do the the betraying right well he shows the ultimate purpose about what this is going to do uh so he says the son of man goes as it is written of him right so this is again this is part of jesus passion prediction he's the son of man this is a messianic term which is often put you know when jesus is role of salvation, um, uh, this is, this, he has this title, the Son of Man is going to go, this is, this is what's written of him, this is what the uh, Old Testament spoke of, this is the whole purpose of salvation history, he's going to go do it. But then you have this, woe to the man by whom that, the man, woe to that man, sorry, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Uh, so this, this idea of a woe, when Jesus speaks woe, it's kind of contrast woes with, with blessings, right? So woe to this, blessed is this. Uh, Jesus does that um, elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, so it's, it's a word of judgment. And it ultimately comes, and we need to understand this. I think this is really important. The judgment comes, and Jesus is, is, is saying this, not primarily because of the betrayal. Um, But it comes because Jesus knows who this is and he knows what's going to happen. Woe to the one who betrays him. Woe woe to Judas, not not because, simply because he betrayed Jesus. But it gets to what's going to happen with Judas even after that. 
and the fact that the woe comes from the fact that it's a re- from a rejection of Christ and his benefits. Jesus, Judas doesn't only betray Jesus, but he also then refuses to f- true repentance and faith in Christ in the end. So, and I think maybe to to think forward in the narrative a little bit and, and do a bit of compare and contrast with Judas and Peter, it, it's not the woe that Jesus speaks is not so much due to the the gravity of of the particular sin that Judas commits, but rather the the lack of faith afterwards. Because Peter, mm-hmm. I mean, we know what Peter's going to do. He's going to deny knowing Jesus three times. He's even going to call a curse down on himself, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, when you, if you want to put those two sins on a, on a scale, the betrayal of Jesus and Peter's threefold denial of Jesus, I'm not sure which one weighs, weighs more. So the, right. the woe here isn't so much about which sin weighs more, but it, it's the woe that Judas has because he's not going to be turned in repentance and faith back to Jesus. Is that what you're, you're driving at, Pastor Wargau? Exactly. And this is something that even our confessions pick up on in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession when they're talking about what repentance actually is. And the, confess- the confessors talk about two parts of repentance, both the, the contrition— right? Being sorry for our sins, but also uh, the necessity of, of faith that comes about then and, and faith which receives uh, the forgiveness of sins. And, and so our, con- our confessions do contrast um, Judas and Peter, just as they contrast Saul and, uh, and David, right? So neither of, or none of those four men were perfect, and, and all of those four men sinned, but there's a difference in then with even their, and, and, and even all four of those men were repentant in a sense. Uh, they, they were sorry for their sins, we'll put it that way. Uh, but that second part of repentance is that faith in Christ. Uh, and so I'm just going to briefly read part of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on this point. Uh, As the second part of repentance, we add faith in Christ, the gospel in which the forgiveness of sins is freely promised concerning Christ. It should be presented to consciences in these terrors. They should believe that for Christ's sake, their sins are freely forgiven. This faith cheers, sustains, and enlivens the contrite, according to Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This faith obtains the forgiveness of sins. It justifies before God, as the same passage testifies, since we have been justified by faith. So here's the, the contrast then. This faith shows the distinction between the contrition of Judas and, and Peter, of Saul and David. The contrition of Judas or Saul is useless because faith is not added. So that's why there's the woe there. Uh, faith grasps the forgiveness of sins given as a gift for Christ's sake. So the contrition of David or Peter helps because faith, which takes hold of the forgiveness of sins granted for Christ's sake, is added to it. So what's even more important there is that we know both sin, but we also then know, and, and, and both are contrite, right? So Judas is sorry, as we'll see, and you know, he returns the silver, but, but he doesn't grasp the forgiveness of sins in Christ. He doesn't have faith in Christ uh, to receive that, and, and so he's left in it, left in his sins. Uh, and that, there's where the woe is. It's better if that man wasn't even born. Whereas Peter, we see, will deny his Lord, but then he's restored, right? In, in John 21, he's restored uh, because he's forgiven, because he trusts in Christ and receives that forgiveness of sins. And, and maybe there's even a, a hint of that, that 
why the woe is given to Judas here, even in, in the way Judas responds to this. So, so Matthew mm -hmm. now, again, we, we said earlier that the dipping the hand in, into the dish is not meant to single out Judas. But, right. but now Matthew does single out Judas, and, mm -hmm. and Judas asks a question too, but it, it's a bit different than what everyone else asked. Right, he adds rabbi to it, right? <laughs> it's not me, is it? Rabbi. Uh, and that, that's a term that Judas, um, I think only in Matthew's gospel, I believe, uh, Judas is the only one that calls him rabbi in that sense. Uh, I really didn't delve into the significance. You might have something a little bit more with that, which is, please do, uh, if you do. But, that, that Judas, but Judas is, is, is kind of singled out, and, and Jesus indirectly answers his question, right? Is it I? And he says, well, you said so, right? You have said it. Uh, and uh, so he's kind of indirectly saying yes to it. Right, and, and I think, and I, I'm pretty sure that this is Matthew that does this, where, where Matthew, you have those who don't believe in Jesus using a term other than Lord for him. So in, oh, yeah, in yeah. verse 22, the, the disciples are asking, is it I, Lord? Here, Judas, mm -hmm. is it I, Rabbi? That, I, and I, I think it's Matthew that does this. I'm, I'm not entirely positive. But, but generally, in, in Matthew, it's not Jesus' disciples who call him rabbi. It's, it's people right. from the crowds. It's his enemies who call him rabbi. And, and so okay. even yeah. within his own question, it, it seems that already you're, you're seeing, again, as, as you've made the point very well, that the, the woe that is given to Judas ultimately comes to him because of his lack of faith. And, and I think you see a hint of that there just in the way that he asks the question, is it I, Rabbi, as, it opposed, to, as opposed to, is it I, Lord? And, and Jesus acknowledges, look, you, you said it, Judas, you said it. So, so there's, there's that, exactly. that scene, right? It, any, any more on that scene before we move into the institution of the supper? I didn't even get to the supper. Okay, very good. Yeah, we, we want to definitely get here. So, so, so take it, and again, as you, you pointed out at the very beginning, this is what Matthew is, is sandwiching here between the, the conversation on betrayal and then the, the conversation on abandonment. Here's the institution of the supper, and this is, this is really the heart of the text, right, Pastor Rogow? Yes, definitely. So, yeah, so, so we, we know these words very well, of course, right? And they're kind of the fundamental text, not only, I mean, they're the foundational text, for uh, our doctrine of, of the Lord's Supper. So what we know about the Lord's Supper, we get from nowhere else but the words of our Lord. Uh, Martin Chemnitz makes a big point. He's got his, uh, I, I, guess, I don't know if it's a book, uh, uh, treatise book on the Lord's Supper, uh, and he sets forth, you know, kind of these key points, but the first kind of, one of the first points he makes on this is the doctrine of the Lord's Supper has its true and proper foundation in the words of institution where the reverent mind ought to search and seek what we ought to believe concerning this mystery. So we understand what we understand concerning the Lord's Supper because of what is written here. And I mean, of course, Luther has this in the small catechism. This is how we teach this doctrine uh, of the Lord's Supper. What is the sacrament of the altar? It's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Now, how can Luther say that? because he goes to the words of institution. So where is this written? And all that which foundationally we understand about the supper is all contained in there. Now, Paul's going to add some, uh, I guess a good way to put it is commentary around it, which are very important to highlight and to emphasize these things, but Paul doesn't speak anything different uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians than what is already established by our Lord when he institutes, when he institutes the meal itself. 
Yeah, that that work you referenced by by Martin Chemnitz. I actually have it sitting here on my desk. I've been I've been working through it recently, and it's just it's brilliant what he does there. It's it's a uh, in CPH published Chemnitz's works. It's in volume five for those who are interested. It's, yeah. it's brilliant stuff, and, and and what you quoted there is is wonderful. So, uh, Pastor Wergau, though, and and without you know the the quotes from the Catechism, right? We we know this. I, I guess mm-hmm. one of one of the questions that that it would probably be good to grapple with for just a couple minutes here is, you know, we, we've said in other places in Matthew's gospel, for example, when he talks about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes, that he does not intend for his disciples to actually cut off their hands or gouge out their eyes. Why, why right. do we take words like that as hyperbole, but these words of Jesus we're not taking as hyperbole. What's what's there in the context for us that's that's different so that we would simply take Jesus at his word that this is his body and it is his blood, period. Yeah, exactly. And I think the context of these words are really, really important, right? So this isn't I mean, Jesus is always teaching, but this isn't like this is a different context than when Jesus teaches in parables or when he when he teaches in hyperbole or anything like that. This is very much, we take Jesus at his word because this is the night when he is going to be betrayed. Every, like I said, everything is heightened here, and he's talking about a new covenant uh, or a new testament. And when dealing with a, a testament, you don't take testaments figuratively. You take them literally. Uh, and we take our Lord at his word when he, when he gives these gifts. And again, of course, this is everything that then is heightened and highlighted by uh, Paul in First Corinthians as well, right? So we can get a clear sense that Paul doesn't take these things as hyperbole or as um, uh, figure language or anything like that, because again, this is this is the night when he's going to be betrayed, and this is when he's instituting the New Testament, the New Covenant, and so it is to be taken literally because of the the, the context that it's in. Now we know not all. Not all Christians do that, uh, unfortunately, but again, just as it's been since the time of the Reformation, is is is, and uh, that's how we take it in this sense that um, that this is the gift that God has given, so we confess only that which he has given, uh, and, and uh, here concerning the supper, this is my body, this, uh, this is my blood uh, of, the, of the covenant. Right, right, and and as you, I mean, some of the things that you're you're putting out there are, are exactly what Martin Kimnitz does in that work that we've referenced a couple yeah. of times here, the Lord's Supper, right? That he 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 really right. just digs into these arguments and and lays them out so so fantastically, so so simply. Even I know, you know, a guy like Martin Kimnitz may may sound intimidating, but really, when you when you read his stuff, it's it's so good, and he, he he's very, very thorough. So I would, I would commend that to anybody who's, who's willing. And just, you know, again, this is what Jesus says. Let's, let's take him at his word. And, and as, as one of my mm-hmm. other guests pointed out, you know, when it comes to what, what sometimes we do call hyperbole, for example, with the matter of cutting off hands, gouging out eyes, it, it actually is quite literally true that it would be better to enter life with only one hand than to enter into fire with two. That, that literally is true. Now, the question becomes, does cutting your hand off help? And, and the answer to that is no, right? But what right. Jesus says there is is literally true. And so we, we do take him at his word there, and we certainly take him at his word here as well. It's always good to take Jesus at his word, I think, to, to believe what he says. And so we, we definitely do that for the, for the supper, that this is his body, it is his blood, and the benefit of it, right, for the forgiveness right. of sins.
any more. I mean, we right. got, and we I got mean, 10 minutes here. Go ahead, Pastor Wargo. Oh, yeah. Uh, because especially, too, if you think, because I'm thinking about this word covenant, especially, because we're talking about the covenant, or some manuscripts have new covenant. I think Luke has new covenant, I think. Um, I but think we know right, it. Yeah. We understand it as the new the new covenant or the New Testament. And, and that's really important to kind of understand when we're talking about figurative language versus real language, because you think about the old covenant. God wasn't speaking to his people of old in figurative language in that sense. The blood of the covenant was blood, and it was that blood which foreshadowed the shedding of Christ's blood, and it was that blood that was uh, thrown upon the people, right? And, and it was, that was the blood of the covenant to mark them. And it's the same blood, and, and I mean, it's just, just it's such a bigger picture than, than when we take away a real meaning of this, and that this is the blood of Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, we lose this Old Testament um, uh, figure uh, or, um, or type that's leading up to this anti-type about it. And it's like, yes, now, of course, it is real blood because the life is in the blood. And the blood of Christ, his life for us is given. And, and of course, this gets into even a bigger kind of thing when we're understanding the two natures of Christ, right? That he is both God, true God and true man, and we do not... Uh, divide Christ, right? He, and this is uh, uh, Augsburg Confession, uh, Article 3, right? We don't divide the Christ to make him two different things uh, so that we know that the whole Christ is present with us in a particular sacramental way that he is present nowhere else as he's given this gift. And again, of course, just like Chemnitz does, why do we know this? Well, that's not through philosophical speculation or jumbling words or anything, but in the clear words that are placed before us, but it fits into all the other uh, doctrine of the church, right? All, all the other facets of the doc- articles of doctrine of the church really do tie into this, to so the two natures of Christ, or what the atonement means, or how the means of grace distribute what is one on the cross to us now uh, in a very real way. So again, it's part of a bigger puzzle and a bigger picture, if you will, that, that you can't just take out this piece and you lose a lot more when you just take out that one piece. This is the the meat of that sandwich that we've been talking about, the, the Lord's Supper, this meal of Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. This is why he is doing everything that he's doing. And as everyone around him falls away, Jesus remains steadfast to win the salvation of the world, to deliver it through this meal, which will be continued on in his church. We still receive it today. After that, that meat of the sandwich, we get the other piece of bread. And, and so the disciples, along with Jesus, leave the upper room. They go out to the Mount of Olives. They're singing a hymn, which is is a, a fun little detail. And their conversation continues to get this more talk about the, the not the betrayal, the falling away of the other disciples. So it's not only Judas that, that's going to be doing something against the Lord. Now the other 11 are, are spoken of as well. Pastor Wario, we got about seven minutes here to go through these these last verses. Sure, yeah. So they leave, and they're going to the uh, Mount of Olives. This is east of Jerusalem. It's kind of on the way to Gethsemane, which, you know, is going to be uh, the, um, the, the, the next episode, if you will, uh, where Jesus will, be, uh, will actually be betrayed. Uh, at this point, uh, especially when we look at um, uh, John's Gospel, we, we know Judas is no longer with the disciples. John 13, 30. You know, he's in the upper room. He he he, he leaves to go uh, make the plans. You know, to betray him, uh, to bring the the crowd or whatever. Uh, but but now with with the, the remaining disciples on their way, they 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 sing the hymn. It's, uh, some commentaries say this is probably uh, a psalm or probably a collection of psalms, probably one thirteen through one eighteen is com- commonly sung. 
at the end of a Passover meal because uh, of, of its connection with uh, with the Passover. Uh, and then Jesus, okay, so we left, and now Jesus, when he's going to speak again, it's, 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 the news doesn't get any better for the disciples. You know, you're all going to fall away. So where he had said, one of you will betray me, now it's the all, right? You're all going to fall away. And then he, he quotes the prophecy from Zechariah 13. And, um, and uh, to, just to kind of say, this is what's going to happen. You're the sheep. I'm the shepherd. The shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep will scatter, right? And so this is going to, again, of course, lead to, to, Peter, um, to Peter, you know, defending, defending himself and, 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 and stepping forth to say it, but not just Peter, all of them, right? But, um, but what's going to happen is what Jesus says comes to pass. And, and we might not think it great or a good thing that the shepherd is struck down, and yet there you have the very center of the gospel, that this shepherd is the good shepherd who lays down his life for those sheep, even those sheep who scattered, who failed him, who, who, who left him, but then who um, are restored once again to the crucified and risen Christ, because he puts it in there too. I think this is great. He doesn't just say, um, you know, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will, will scatter. You all fall away from me. But he says, then he adds in 32, after I am raised up. So he speaks of his being struck down, his death, but even with his passion predictions earlier, he's always speaking about his death and his resurrection. And so he, he knows the sheep are going to scatter. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. But he says, I will be raised, and I'm going to go before you to Galilee. He tells them, he gives them instructions, right? And those are the same instruction, instructions that, that the angel will speak at the empty tomb, right? This is what he told you. Uh, and, uh, and then, so he, he, doesn't, he isn't crucified and risen and then hiding from those uh, sheep that are that are scattered, or mad at the sheep that are scattered, or vengeful at them for betraying and scattering them. He tells them where he'll be. He comes to them in John's Gospel, especially, you know, he goes to the disciples in the upper room, even through locked doors, to speak the peace of the resurrection to them. The, the, the shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered, but then the shepherd is raised and the sheep gather or the shepherd gathers his sheep again is, is the picture that you get here. And it is, it's a wonderful thing to see Peter, of course, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> he, he, he does what Peter does all, all the time here. How, how do we see, how do we see Peter reacting to what Jesus has to say? Yeah, you're right. Typical to how we kind of understand Peter from the gospel. He's very confident, bold, overconfident, confidence, boldness. Those aren't necessarily bad things, but, there's also pride that accompanies it, I think, you know, even if all of these others, though they all are going to fall away from you and one of them is going to betray you, I'm never going to do it. And then it gets really pointed, right? It gets really pointed to Peter. Not only are you going to fall away, but like you mentioned earlier, you're going to do even worse things really than betray me. You're going to deny me. You're going to call down a curse. Uh, and then, of course, Peter, that doesn't really break Peter's confidence even. Uh, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then, of course, we do have to understand that all the other disciples said the same thing. So they're, they're all willing when, when we're speaking in, in abstractions or hypo, uh, hypotheticals to, to lay down their lives for Jesus. But when the reality hits and he actually is handed over, uh, then they're going to fail and they're going to fall, which is good for us to know because, as has been laid out through all of this, these disciples are not supermen. They're not holy rollers or anything like that. They're very real people that Jesus calls to himself, 
that he makes his disciples, uh, that he um, even eats this meal with and institutes this meal with, he does it for sinners, right? And he lays down his life for those sinners, for the sheep that scatter, for us sheep that wander. And he's got that very gift of his supper, not for those perfect disciples that are going to, you know, die for their Lord, but for those sinners who are going to deny him. Uh, and fall away, but yet he dies for them, and then he continues to call them to himself. And again, of course, in John 21, restores Peter, but, you know, all the disciples receive that peace of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins uh, from that resurrected Lord. Pastor Rogal, with just about a minute left here on the morning, any points that we missed that you want to hit or, or wrap things up for us today? Um, I think, you know, kind of we just see the, the, the big picture here when we're dealing with the Lord's Supper, when we're dealing with what kind of comes before and after it is the idea that uh, who is this supper for and uh, why does God, God give this supper and why does he give these gifts uh, for his disciples and for the whole church? Because these gifts are given in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of, de- uh, you know, or foretelling of betrayal and foretelling of denial and, and all this you know, uh, what we would consider kind of, I don't know if we consider it dark, but we would consider it not happy news, but through this and for this group that bears this cross with our Lord and goes through this uh, and, and who are, have, find no worth or merit in themselves, he gives this gift, right? This gift of his body to eat and his blood to drink. And that gift comes from the sacrifice, from the cross, from when our Lord is handed over into suffering and death and raised again, then he gives the fruit of that suffering and death, that work of atonement. He gives the fruit of his cross to, uh, to his church. He hands it over again. He hands over these gifts. They don't come from us, but they come from our Lord. We stand upon his word and promise because these aren't the words of, of, of a man or of a mere man or of a, uh, you know, a king. I think Luther talks about an ordinance of a prince or an emperor. These are the words of Christ. The words of God, who has reconciled us to himself, who has laid down his life, and for us here in this veil of tears, dealing with all the ch- challenges of life, all the struggles of life, and even in our own sins, our Lord gives us this gift of the forgiveness of sins to calm our consciences, to forgive us, and to keep us in that one true faith, uh, even unto life everlasting. Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 35. Pastor Wergau, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.